on the record flips to the B-side. We all have them in one form or another. And as they say on Cheers, ah, family. Can't live with them? Pass the beer nuts. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month on B-Side, a holiday archive show all about family. As on the record, flips to the B-Side. Happy holidays and welcome to B-Side. I'm Mia Lobel. So it's Christmas, and for most of us, it's big family time. But until recently, my family has been pretty small. I have one brother, one aunt, one uncle, no first cousins. I'm lucky enough to have three amazing grandparents that blow me away with their youthfulness. My 88-year-old grandfather still skis, and my grandmother is known for her dirty jokes. But until recently, I had little extended family to speak of. Then, about a year ago, my dad got a call from Richmond Shepherd the nephew of my dad's grandmother. Now, if I try to get into the whole second cousin twice removed thing, I'm going to get totally confused. So let's just say we're related. Anyway, Richmond wanted to reconnect with family he'd lost contact with so many years ago. And to make a long story short, my family recently grew to include about 40 cousins, Richmond's four daughters and their families, all living in California. It's been an amazing thing, getting to know them, getting to see all the familial similarities that exist despite never having met these people before. So in the same spirit of sharing and togetherness, we've pulled together stories from our B-Side archive about family. First up, my dad. This was one of the sounds of my childhood. My dad would disappear for hours at a time into the basement. He has a workshop down there, hidden away behind piles of old magazines and scrap lumber. The sounds of saws and hammering, fans and power drills would drift up through the ventilation shafts into my room. A few weeks ago, I decided to relive the memory. I hadn't been home in a while. It was my dad's birthday, and I figured I'd ask what he's been doing down there all these years. He gave me the grand tour. So we're now entering my world. This is where I do my work. This is where I relax. And this is where I fix things. I know most people's dads like to putz around and fix little things around the house. And I don't mean to brag, but my dad takes it to a whole new level. You'll see what I mean. Okay, here we go. We're going downstairs. Half of the basement is finished with drywall and carpeting. It holds my dad's framing studio and darkroom. The other half, cement walls and open ceilings, is crammed with power tools and layered with sawdust. We're now entering another section of my world, which is really my favorite place in the world to be. And that's, that's not a joke. This is my workshop. The shop is filled with every kind of tool you can imagine. He shows me some of his favorites. What we're looking at here is a router table, and a router is a a wonderful machine that spins a bit at a very high rate of speed, and that bit... I was looking for a quick demo, and, and but what I got was an episode of This Old House, with a twist. Uh, this is an old pair of jockey shorts, which have been converted into a, uh, a rag, essentially. It's not that I'm not interested in hearing about his tools, 
and the things he's fixed around the house. It's just that he's fixed everything, and he really gets into it. And here we go. Isn't that a great sound? Now, believe it or not, that sound, and you smell this? Oh, I love the smell of that wood. Believe it or not, I love that sound. That sound relaxes me. I, it's kind of hard to describe, but the, the sound of, of tools of various types on wood is just very soothing to me. And when I'm down here, I lose all track of time and space, and I'm just totally focused on what I'm doing. There's no point in trying to get his attention when he's down here. He says he's been this way his whole life. These talents didn't come completely naturally. He owns the entire Time Life series of home repair books and jokes that he's committed them all to memory. He spends a silly amount of time at Home Depot, and the only thing he watches on TV besides the Food Network is HGTV. That's home and garden television. He worships Norm Abram from the New Yankee Workshop and, of course, Bob Vila from This Old House Classics. He doesn't just watch these guys, he studies them. I'm fortunate to have the kind of mind where once I see it done, I understand how to do it. And I have very good manual dexterity, so it just translates from my eye to my hands. And he has gotten his hands into every room of the house. Going upstairs. Over here, this is one of my early projects. And this is my all-time favorite bowl. you got to feel that. Isn't that smooth? Isn't that beautiful? He's just as proud of the toilet as he is of the pieces of furniture he's made. Don't you just love that sound? Fascinating. I have replaced the interior parts of this. Notice how clean they are and how fresh. That is a new toilet mechanism. There is nothing more annoying than a drippy toilet. And he doesn't stop with our house. He fixes things for all the neighbors, too, like Barbara from down the street. He helped me when my basement flooded. He fixed a zipper on my dress the other day. <laughs> He's fixed my clock. He's fixed my toilets. He has fixed everything, you name it. Just your friendly neighborhood repairman. Do you ever feel like you should have a cape and like a little siren? When somebody calls, you rush right over with your, your big S. For Steve, of course. You know, this is something that I, I really didn't know when to tell you, but I do have that stuff. I don't want to imagine my dad in a cape and tights, but I have a sinking feeling that he wasn't entirely kidding. The thing I realized, though, is that despite all the joking and the really long descriptions of how things work around the house, what my dad was really showing me was how he works. Working with your hands is wonderful. It stimulates your mind and... Uh, and I think keeps you young. Feel young? It's your birthday, right? I feel just chipper. <laughs> I feel like a spring chicken. Yeah, very young. Yes, I feel young. And getting younger, much to your mother's uh, consternation. There's one more thing you need to know about my dad. He's had about a million different jobs and never finishes a book before starting five others. But the one consistent thing has been his workshop. It's the one thing he always goes back to. And the one thing, I think, that keeps him sane. I'm an adventurous person, so I learn a lot of stuff by doing. And I make a lot of mistakes, but I'm not afraid to make mistakes. So that's, I can't tell you how many times I may have rebuilt things. In fact, that reminds me, we'll have to look at my latest weatherproofing uh, venture. 
here we go again. the only one who has a relative that beats to his own drummer, let's say. Our senior producer, Tamara Keith, has this story about her aunt and uncle, who don't leave much to the imagination. You'll see what I mean. Until about six months ago, everything seemed to be great for my Aunt Carol and Uncle Scott. They had a nice house in Truckee right across the street from Donner Lake, just minutes from Tahoe's best ski runs. And everyone in my family envied their Mercedes SUV. But then something changed. Things were going just fine, I thought. And then all of a sudden I realized we couldn't afford to make the house payments. And so we had to make a decision. So my aunt and uncle decided to downsize. They gave up their nice house and nice car and moved into a 1974 Comanche motorhome. You know, we kind of drove by a car lot in Reno one day and said $2,300 on that motorhome. So I went in asked like if a number fell off or something but I said no and we wrote a check and drove it down here and it's been down here ever since. Here is Laguna del Sol, an upscale campground outside of Sacramento and it's here that my aunt and uncle have spent the better part of the last five months. It wasn't really plan A but plan A oftentimes doesn't work out so I guess about plan F or G is in effect right now. What makes this situation truly unique is that Laguna del Sol is a clothing optional resort. Yes, you heard that right, clothing optional, as in leave your pants, shirt, and modesty at the gate. They have showers, swimming pools, a restaurant, and it's still cheaper to stay there than at most traditional campgrounds. I showed up at Laguna del Sol on an unseasonably warm Saturday in November. Turns out this was perfect weather for nude sunbathing. My aunt and uncle met me at the gate. My uncle was wearing shorts. My aunt was wearing much less. I pulled out my microphone, got set up for the interview, and then realized that at some point along the way, my uncle had dropped his shorts. Since we're all kind of out here and, I mean, we're naked, it's real hard to, you know, not just be kind of nice and <laughs> you know everything else there's there's I don't know it seemed like a lot of barriers are already kind of broken and uh, people just seem to be real honest and you know good to each other. My aunt and uncle had visited the nudist resort several times before but had no plans to move in until they found themselves in financial straits. Then Uncle Scott says Laguna del Sol became not just a place to let it all hang out but actually a cost-effective way of surviving some really tough times. We stayed out here the whole summer in, in between houses, and it was over three months from like, or from Memorial Day to Labor Day, and our bill was like 700 bucks. And that was including eating out sometimes and going to the bar every weekend, and drinks and camping and everything. I mean, 700 bucks. I mean, you know, that's not even half most people's rent, and that, and we're talking three months of just having a nice time. This wasn't Plan A or plan B, or even plan D. But for Carol and Scott, it's the way they're going to be living for a while. And so we're working our way up. <laughs> we're wa working from square one. 
and I think it's going to go fine. I think we're going to be happier this way without all the bills and um, trying to keep my Mercedes and <laughs> I'm not going to do it anymore. I'd rather be happy and I've learned to be happy. I think with what I've got. Life is a continual roller coaster. Every day is a roller coaster. I mean, you know, right now we're, you know, clicking clicking back up the track and, you know, and then sometimes you get the slide. And you never know. You just have to get up every day and do it. And when they do work their way back up, Scott and Carol say they won't stop going to Laguna del Sol. They like it there. For B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith. Fully clothed, in case you were wondering, at Laguna del Sol. Listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as on the record flips to the B side. You're listening to B side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month, a Holiday Archive edition all about family. Though it's been over a year since the attack on the World Trade Center, my memories of that time are still strong. Especially around the holidays, I think we're all thinking about how much things changed that September and how thankful we are for those we didn't lose. Up next, two stories about the importance of family in difficult times. First, Amy Scott visits Disneyland with her mom. It was late October last year. My mom was coming to Los Angeles, where I live, for a business trip, and given everything that had happened a month earlier, I decided I had to meet her in the happiest place on Earth, Disneyland. Mom, are you paying for this? Yes, I am paying for it. Good. Welcome aboard the Disneyland monorail. And it was amazing. The minute I walked into that place, I felt so safe. Strangely, in this new age of extreme caution, no one searched our bags. No one even glanced at my microphone. The candy-colored huts and the swirl of children and chocolate frozen bananas and painted-on smiles lulled me back to a sense of security I hadn't felt since, well, before September. But for me, Disneyland wasn't always the safest place on Earth. I think it was a lot more fun for the adults than it was for the kids. Why's that? I guess I'm thinking about the time that you were so scared on Pirates of the Caribbean and we were having so much fun. Oh yeah, the Pirates of the Caribbean. How could I forget? It was my first ride ever at Disneyland. I remembered the wet smell of wood, a creaky boat ride, and lots of scary, drunken pirates. What were my parents thinking? Well, we just thought Pirates of the Caribbean was one of the most fun, exciting, what do you call them? <laughs> Events, rides. But you were just a little child, three or four years old, and you were absolutely terrified and you didn't want to go on any more rides no matter what. <laughs> Not even it's a small world? Not even it's a small world. Pretty sad. Anyway, Mom and I decided to wander over to Adventureland to check out the scary pirate ride now that we're both grown-ups and all. Our Ahoy meetings welcome aboard. Notice, Mom, there aren't any kids on this ride. Oh, 
Okay, I can see why I would be getting scared right about now. There's a talking skull on the wall. And you're about to go into a cave and you can't see anything. And what well do you work, matey? Dead men tell no tales. (laughs) 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 The thing about theme parks is they're designed to scare you, but in a controlled setting. The ride jerks and then drops you into a black cave, some scary music plays, you get jerked a couple more times, and it's over. But you can't tell that to a four-year-old who's blindly followed her parents onto this ride and can't really distinguish between what's real and what's a plastic mannequin with an eye patch and a fake parrot taped to its head. At this point, was I screaming? (laughs) I think so. Screaming and wanting to get out. (laughs) A friend once tried to convince me that it's against Disney rules for anyone to die at Disneyland. Like they put you on life support until they get you out of the park, at which point you're free to do as you like, I guess. Pure urban legend, of course, but that's the kind of mythology that surrounds Disney culture. Cast members must never be seen out of character. The staff have their own little private world of underground tunnels and passageways, all designed to maintain this illusion of perfection, magic, and safety. Of course, people have died at Disneyland. Nine people since the park opened in 1955. Someone even got hurt on the Pirates of the Caribbean last year. But it wasn't the idea of getting hurt that scared me so much as a four-year-old. I guess it was that my very own parents would lead me into a dark, violent place and that that was supposed to be fun. Now I was back here again, but this time taking refuge on the pirate ride. And it had turned out that the real world could be even scarier. Well, we did it, Mom. Is it as impressive as you remember? No. A lot has changed in terms of our sensibilities, I guess. You mean we've changed? The ride hasn't changed, but we have? No, definitely. We emerged from the cave into the fading daylight. Mom wanted to see the electric parade, so we joined the throngs of children and their weary parents along Main Street, lined with false pink and yellow storefronts. At one point, it began to snow, October in Southern California, and fat little flakes dropped down from the sky. The Canty family, visiting from Northern California, stood nearby, taking it in with their son, Max. Does it make you feel cold seeing the snow? Yes. <laughs> but it's not still, it's bubbles. <laughs> it's what? Bubbles. Oh. Bubbles. So much for suspension of disbelief, Max would have no trouble with the scary mannequins. Do you think you'll take them on Pirates of the Caribbean? I don't know, Max. Do you want to go on a pirate ship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. I asked Max's mom if they'd come here to escape what was really happening in the world. That certainly helps. It's magical, you know, it's definitely magical. (laughs) As for me and Mom, we went off to Tomorrowland to tackle a grown-up scary ride, the roller coaster Space Mountain. Frankly, though, it just made me kind of carsick, and the blind turns and whiplash were nothing compared to what waited for us outside of Disney's protective gates. The next day, it was back to the real ride. For B-Side, I'm Amy Scott in Los Angeles.
Finally today, a piece from Noam Birnbaum, who visited his mom in New York City shortly after the September 11th attacks. Noam brings us his mom's story of survival and memories. One night when I was five years old, I realized I was going to die. I called out for my mother, and she told me it wouldn't happen for a long time. But suddenly she said, you know what I think is sad? I never knew my parents. That's the only time she ever expressed emotion about her childhood unprompted. In 1944, when she was four years old, the Nazis interred her and her family in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where her parents died of starvation and disease. I would tell you more of her story if I could, except she doesn't remember. You just have to accept the fact that, you know, you can't remember and that's it. I can't even imagine what it would be like not to remember such a significant experience. And because my mother can't remember, I feel a deep loss. After all, it's where I come from, and if she doesn't remember, I'll only understand my past through history books. I went home this past spring, still grappling with the effects of the September 11 attacks on the Lower Manhattan neighborhood where I grew up. I wanted my mother to help me put that day into perspective, so we went on a walk through the still devastated neighborhood to reflect and, I hoped, to talk about her own traumatic past. Unfortunately, she seemed to know as little about the reality of the Holocaust as me. You know, when, when people like say, are amazed that I am a Holocaust survivor, I, I, hate, this, I hate this phrase, you know. It's, it's like I am not a Holocaust survivor. I'm like a child of a Holocaust survivor because I can't remember anything. It's like I'm a second generation. I know that I'm a Holocaust survivor, but for me it's like happened to somebody else because I simply don't remember it. I, on, I only know what I was told. So that's it. No, it didn't happen to me. I find it strange that my mother feels she isn't really a Holocaust survivor, because although I wasn't even alive at the time, it's always been a pervasive force in my life. It's like my mother and I swapped places. I'm the survivor and she's the forgetter. I can pretend that things didn't happen and therefore, you know, get over them faster. Or, no, no, not that they didn't happen, but they didn't happen to me personally. I am safe, I'm all right, so that's it, you know. It sounds terribly selfish, but it's, it's, I think it's a mechanism of protection, self-protection, you know. I just close myself from emotions. For me, it's the opposite. When I see all the joy and excitement the world has to offer, I can't help knowing that it also has many frightening possibilities which few people openly consider, even my mother, whose life seems to prove tragedy's potential. It's true that many people can't remember their childhoods, but she seems to have built walls against anything but forgetting. Uh, all my life, it's like my life is all a, a chain of events that 
seems to have been carried me along with it and, and, and hardly any time on my own initiative. It's very strange because I have been to many places and I've I went through a lot and yet you know it's such a placid life with no no big earth-shaking events it's 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 weird I think if when I'm thinking of it which I never do this was obvious on our walk as we strolled past the site of the World Trade Center collapse just blocks away from her home instead of talking about the tragedy all she wanted to talk about was flowers grape hyacinths pansies the trees are budding. So nice. <laughs> Spring. It's a nice day. See, when you live in the city, it's, you have to get enjoyment from any little piece of earth you can. As I watched her smell the flowers, I thought about my tendency to always fear the worst, and I wondered whether pessimism was getting in my way. Maybe I was the one who needed to learn how to cope with the past, not her. Although she had lived through a traumatic event, she hadn't let it keep her from living her life. Her reluctance to look back, which I've always seen as a personal failing, might actually be an affirmation of the gift of life that her parents were denied. You know, when somebody dies around you, you have to, you mourn and then you get over it, you continue living. Uh, And I, I keep marveling about the great capacity of human body to revive and to become normal again after being deprived for so long, you know, and at the crucial period of childhood, too. As she showed me the different types of beauty that thrive on the edges of her adopted home, I began marveling at her ability to revive and find pleasure in even the smallest things. Look at this new fish. Last week, we only had, I saw only two fish here, one large female and one smaller one, probably the male. And, but no, they're oh, good. It's so good to see when that life is coming back to my favorite place, my favorite pond. At the boat basin behind a ruined glass atrium, we found a makeshift memorial to the firefighters who lost their lives that day. Still trying to draw her out, I said, September 11 was very sad, but you've probably had enough sadness. You're probably numb by now. She turned toward the construction workers rebuilding the atrium and said, I just want everything to be rebuilt be back to normal, be beautiful again. Just as I was surprised as a child to hear her express her longing for her parents, I was surprised to hear this one simple wish. And although I still felt there were many unspoken words that I had gone home to hear, and all sorts of frightening possibilities ahead, I realized that I, too, wanted everything to be beautiful again. For B-Side, I'm Noam Birnbaum. That's all for this month's Archive Edition of B-Side. 
Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on January 22nd with another archive edition. Hey, everybody needs a vacation. In the meantime, On the Record returns January 8th. I'm Mia Lobel. Happy holidays, and thanks for listening.